Isaiah chapter 61. Let's quickly get to the scriptures tonight. Thank you for being here this evening. Isaiah chapter 61. We're glad to see you here this evening. Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 tonight. I'm going to have you underline some things. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures tonight that I pray will help you this evening as we try to grow in the Lord. Isaiah chapter 61. Say amen if you're there. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. How many want that tonight? Amen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. I call your attention to verse 3 tonight on those simple words that are found right there. Three words, beauty for ashes. Is there such a thing? Is there such a thing that beauty can be found in the midst of ashes? And we're going to look at that tonight and some scriptures this evening to speak to us. And I pray that tonight if you are someone coming out of a trial, someone going into a trial, someone in the midst of a trial, I pray that tonight that you just would sense God's hand in your life, that there's beauty that can be found in these ashes. Father, tonight I pray for this anointing that Isaiah spoke of and that Jesus had. And I pray that, Lord, I, I pray that as a congregation we'd have this meekness because the Bible says you sent a preacher to preach good tidings to the meek. But in our midst, Lord, we also have those who are brokenhearted, those who are captive and bound, and those, dear God, who feel imprisoned, and those who need comfort because they're mourning. And tonight I pray for the Spirit's anointing tonight to bring those good tidings this evening. Thank you that Christmas is about good tidings. But tonight we need to unveil unravel, and get into what the scriptures say about this matter of beauty for ashes. We pray you be glorified through this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned earlier today that uh, tonight that our 41st president, his body was laid to rest today. And they had a, uh, over the, in Washington, D.C., they had a, an incredible service eulogizing him. And I'm certain that in the history books that today, will be remembered as the day that they laid him to rest. But not too long ago, today being the fifth day of December, and in three days would be almost a month ago, on November 8, 2018, at 6.30 a.m. in the morning, that day will be remembered as the start of the most devastating fire in the history of California. Now, I've not gone up there to see it. I plan to. But I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I cannot imagine going to an area that once thrived with houses and businesses and schools and parks and hospitals all engulfed by flames. And all that's left is, the, the, is basically foundations, charred rubble, ashes, and basically charred metal that was left over. This campfire, as they dubbed it, was the most devastating state of California. 153,336 acres were consumed by this fire. 88 confirmed deaths. As of Monday, 25 still reported missing. Listen to this. 
18,793 structures were destroyed, of which 13,696 of them were personal residences. Can you imagine? 13,000 families, thir almost 14,000 families are homeless right now because of that fire. I mean, it's just, it's just very overwhelming to think about that. While we've been trying to content and doing our thing and going about our life and had carving our turkeys and living our life and driving about our foods, I want you to understand that these people here, that their lives have been turned upside down. Many of those people had to endure and breathe the, the very, very bad air on that. Now, God only knows the, the, the upper respiratory illnesses many of them will probably have because of that in days to come. Five firefighters were injured. And in comparison to the Tubbs fire, which, which, which burned at the same time down in Southern California, the Tubbs fire, which was also bad, the Tubbs fire only saw a third of that kind of destruction. The Tubbs fire saw 5,636 structures that burned and were consumed versus 18,000. And the Tubbs fire saw 22 people that were reported dead and killed and incinerated by the fires in comparison to 88. And again, as you think about this, that rescue workers before all the rains came, were looking for victims, and residents were slowly allowed to return to their places. And what was used, used to be a beautiful, perhaps track division home, and what used to be probably a nice front lawn and a front lobbyway, those people went back there, and in some cases, if they had a fireplace, maybe all that was left was the brick. In many cases, all they saw were ashes. All that was left was rubble and ashes, if you can imagine that. Now, we're familiar with ashes. If you've ever done a campfire, you know that at the, when you start off with all these logs of fire, these logs, and you set them on fire, at it for a period of time, they, they're, they're, they, 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 they burn up, and what's left at the, by the next morning, all you got is ashes there. If you've barbecued with charcoal, you've seen ashes, and you've seen how charcoal starts out, but at the end, there, there's just ashes. We've seen that. We're familiar with that. And I want to remind you tonight for that when, when, with ashes, ashes are the charred and burned remains of something that once was. And you're going to hear me say it over and over again. Ashes are the charred remains of something that once was. It was something that was once there. Things or even bodies that once were there. Things that were living, things that were inanimate, things that we had some attachment to, but they are the charred remains of something that once was. Only one event can, or process can result in ashes, and that process is fire. Only fire can bring about ashes to something. When you think about those buildings, those 18,000 structures and those 13,000 homes, when the fire that rushed through there came through there and the wind was blowing, all that was left were ashes. Now, fire can be friendly. We need fire, and we thank God for fire. Fire is used for cooking. Fire is used for heat and for warmth. Fire is necessary for smelting. Fire is a necessary component of energy. Fire can be friendly, but fire can also be a foe, as we saw with the campfire. Fire is the only way ashes that can be produced. Ashes are the product of fire. What you notice here in chapter 61 of Isaiah is Isaiah is led of the Lord to speak about, about things to come. He's talking about Jewish people that were under affliction by the Assyrians and the day coming that they would just they would be encouraged by the preaching of God's word. And of course, it's also millennial in context and speaking about the future of our Lord's millennial reign. But if you look at there, he's talking about a word from God, the spirit of the Lord being upon the preacher as he preaches and being able to preach good tidings to the people of God. 
And he talks about the comfort God wants to give his people. And by the way, that's what God wants to give us. I think sometimes we, we have a tendency to forget that as we get up during the day and we start our day, we need comfort. We need God's comfort in our lives. We need his consolation in our hearts. I'm thankful that as I think about that man, Simeon, the Bible says he waited for the consolation of Israel. Israel was in great need of consolation. Tonight, some of us are going into Christmas and we're battling some, some, something going on, some trial, some difficulty. Maybe some are going through some form of chastening that nobody knows about. And you're just looking for consolation. And in the midst of everything being mentioned in Isaiah chapter 61, he says this in verse 3, if you'll go there with me, please. He says, I, he says, I come to comfort all that mourn, to point unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. Now, when you think about that, that, that just, we kind of used to reading it, but if you think with me for just a minute, how can it be that you can find beauty in ashes? Ashes are charred remains. Ashes are all what's left over after fire has burned through something and burned it up. Fire has consumed something. All that's left is ashes. How in, in the world can there be beauty in ashes? And tonight, we're going to ask this question, and we're going to unravel this and look at Scripture tonight. Is there anything good that can come out of, the, out of the ashes? Is there anything that good that can come when a fire comes about? Notice number one tonight, I want you to consider with me the ravage of fire. The ravage of fire. As I said, ashes are the result of a fire that has ravaged a location or person. Well, we're going to do some Bible study tonight. And those of you new to the Bible and just trying to find your way, I want you to just get used to finding the Bible. There was a day in our churches through expository preaching, we actually took time to read the Scriptures. We're going to take some time to read some Scriptures tonight. Amen? And I want you to go to Genesis 18, verse 27. Very familiar passage of Scripture there. Please turn to that if you would, please. Genesis 28, uh, 18. And in Genesis 18, we have where the, uh, where the Lord comes with, another, with the angels, another angel to meet with Abraham and Sarah. And that's the last time they meet with Abraham and Sarah to announce to them about the, about the, the coming son, the promised son. And uh, Abraham at this time is about 99, and Sarah there is about 89 years of age, and they're about to turn 190 respectively. And it's the very last time out of five times that God came to them between 75 and 99 about the promised son, Isaac. They, they were they're physically and biologically, they were not capable of having children, and uh, God would bless them and use this in such a way. But during that time, Abraham noticed that the angels of God, the Lord himself, he turned his face, and his face was pointed towards the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says that the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah reached all the way up to heaven. It was a horrific cry. It was, it was a sinful cry that was going on. And Abraham noticed something was going on there. And God noticed as God was pointing towards, towards Sodom and Gomorrah. That God was planning on doing some business down there. And it wasn't going to be good business. It wasn't going to be commercial business. God was going to take care of sin and deal with sin there. <coughs> the Bible tells in verse 27 something very interesting. He starts to pray before God. And it's a wonderful passage that we understand this here. It's, in fact, it's one of the first passages of Scripture that teaches us about intercessory prayer, of how to stand before God in the gap for someone else or something else and to pray for God. It teaches us how we can pray and change the mind of God. How many believe that tonight, that your praying can change the mind of God? Amen? And so it teaches us how, how one man, a man of God, he was, called, he was called a prophet that would pray for people, that he stood in the gap by one, as one man to pray for God's mind to be changed about the judgment of God against, against Sodom. It wasn't that he was for what Sodom was doing, but, God, but he had a nephew down there. He had family members down in that city. And he was concerned that those family members would perish in the judgment of God. And he was concerned for salvaging them. And he was praying for righteous people there. And he, and he, and he went to God. And he, you might say in his praying he bargained with God. He negotiated with God about this matter. And right in the midst of it, he starts off, if you read Genesis 18, he says, Lord, if 
there be 50 righteous found in the city, would you spare the city? And they're talking with each other, and the Bible says this in verse 27. And Abraham answered God after God responded. God said, listen, okay, if, if you really believe there's 50 righteous, he said, I'll spare the city for you. And man, that's just God's mercies there on behalf of a righteous man. And Abraham so responds to God, and he says, now, behold now, watch this. Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Notice what he says there, which am but dust and ashes. Now, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to that, that phrase, that description, but he's describing himself. I come to you, Lord, he says in verse 27, to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. At that moment of time, as he's feeling the pressure and the burden and the need, that God doesn't judge Sodom because his, law, his nephew Lot's there and Lot's family's there. Abraham is under intense burden at that moment of time of getting God to change his mind. And he says, God, God, I, I come to you because I am but dust and ashes. And using that phrase, he's speaking of his humanity. He's drawing us under two extremes. Extreme number one, he speaks about dust. He's referring to the fact he's a created being. The makeup he has that we were, that God made us of dust. He knew the Genesis account. He knew that he was a created being. He's speaking about the, his mortality. He's speaking about his humanity on one extreme. And then he talks about ashes on the other extreme. He realizes, you know what? If God is going to bring judgment, I, he, I think he had some kind of a foresight of this as a prophet of God. Because the Bible calls him a prophet. God called him a prophet in Genesis chapter 20. I think he had some kind of foresight here that God was going to judge this city and God was going to judge this city by fire and brimstone. I think he had some advanced knowledge about that. And he says, he speaks about himself. He says, I'm but dust and ashes. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm human. And he says, Lord, I'm human. I'm going to die. And he says, Lord, as a human being, I also know I'm sinful. And I thank God that my sins were judged already but, but, but through the shed blood. But he says, I realize that I'm human. But he says, he's also saying, being dust and ashes, I'm nobody, Lord. And he says, I'm helpless. And Lord, I humble myself before you. And he comes to God with this idea that, Lord, I am human, I am humble, and I'm helpless. Lord, I'm nothing. Lord, you could ravage me by fire and turn me into dust. And so he says to God as he's praying, Lord, I'm but dust and but ashes. He's realizing in that moment of time how little he is and how helpless he is unless God does something for him. He speaks about himself as being but dust and ashes. Now we see Abraham, which you notice Job as he's wrapped through the ravage of fire. And there at that moment as we talked about Abraham, I think Abraham envisioned his mind fire raging through Sodom and God burning through that. But I want you to notice with me Job, Job in his misery, the ravages of fire. Go with me to Job chapter 1 and 2 if you would please because to understand it. And we'll start with Job chapter 2. Would you go there, please? In Job chapter 2, I want you to see Job, a statement that Job makes about the ashes, and then we'll go back to chapter 1. In Job chapter 2, Job makes this statement in verse 8. It says, so he took him a pot shirt. And if you don't know what a pot shirt is, basically it's pottery that was broken up. It's basically the shard of a, of, of a pottery, of a porcelain pottery or clay pottery that was broken off. And he literally took the sharp edges and he was scraping these, these boils off of him. And you'll notice here he says in verse 8, he says he took him a pot shirt to scrape himself with him. And notice this phrase there. I want you to under, under, underline this and think about it for a minute. He sat down among the ashes. Now, Abraham said, I am but dust and ashes. Job said he sat down among the ashes. He literally was sitting in where fire had gone through and burned something up. Go back with me to chapter 1. In chapter 1, 
Job is defined to us as God's, as a righteous man. I love reading verse 1 when he speaks about the testimony of this man, that he was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. He was a man that walked with God. He was a contemporary of Abraham, most people think. And as a contemporary of Abraham, here was a man on, on that same side of the world that was living for God. A testimony, there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed their knees, amen. And, uh, and so Satan comes to God and he says, listen, if you take that protective hedge off this man, I promise you he'll curse you to the face. And God says, no, I know his integrity. I know his heart. I know his mind. I know this man that if I took my hedge of protection off him, I know he won't complain. I know that he won't lie against me. I know that he won't turn to sin. I know that he'll keep his integrity. By the way, that's just a great thought God has for you and me, amen, if he, he believes that about us. And so he says, okay, well, I'll take the protective hedge off. And he says, you can, you can do whatever, but you can't have his life. You can do whatever. So in one day's time, in fact, I'm convinced it's not just in one day's time. I think within a matter of minutes and maybe within a course of a couple hours, Job goes through a whirlwind of, of, of catastrophic events that nobody would wish upon their worst enemy. How many believe that tonight? Amen. A, a, you know, you've read this many times. He goes through a whirlwind of catastrophic events that you just can't explain. In just moments of time, watch what happens. In verses 15 to 19, in moments of time, he loses all of his herd, he loses his heirs, he loses his helpers, he loses his, 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 loses his holdings, his real estate literally collapses under him. I mean, this man is, is, is in a place where everything materially that was important to him, he lost. I want you to imagine for just a minute, he's lost all of his herd, I mean, that's how he made his money. He lost his camels. He lost his he lost his cattle. I mean, he lost his sheep. They're all they're all taken off. The, his helpers are, are are gone. I mean, he's lost all of these things in moments of time. And notice how that how this unfolds here. The Bible says in verse thirteen, there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. Normal day. Normal day, normal situation. And he says, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Not at that time, the Sabians never bothered them. But the Sabians came down and hostily took advantage of them and stole all his asses, stole all of his oxen. And then he says, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And one comes back and says, I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And notice what he says, verse 16. This one servant that comes back, he barely has gotten all of that out of his mouth. Then another servant comes in verse 16. If you could imagine, I mean, Job has just been hit with a brick. And he's kind of staggering there. And just he's trying to get his wits himself. Another servant comes. And in verse 16, this servant says, while he was yet speaking, there came also another. And he said, notice this, the fire of God is fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants, and consume them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now he's trying to imagine his mind. He hasn't got his mind wrapped around the fact the savings have come, and they took away his, his asses and his oxen. And he's thinking, how could they amass such, a, such an army to take all my herds away? And while he's barely got his mind wrapped around that, another servant comes. He says, you won't believe this, Job. I'm the only one escaped, but the fire of God came down from heaven. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, fire came down out of the sky, and fire came down in abundance, and it came down, and it consumed all these things here. Notice what it says in verse 16. It came down from heaven and burned up the sheep and burned up the servants and consumed them. Watch this. Verse 16, all that was left was ashes. 
That's all that's there. Well, he's barely got his mind around this. He's trying to imagine his mind supernaturally what God did there. And verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came also another. And the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and carried them away. Yea, and they've slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And then he said, while he was yet speaking, I mean, can you imagine? Consecutively, within seconds of each other, these servants come and explain to them these, this whirlwind of catastrophes that have happened to, to this man by the name of Job. And he said, verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and it smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell me. Now I want you to understand what's going on. You read all that, and you can you imagine in just a minute, this is within minutes, all this explanation and all these things. And he's calculating his mind. He's gone from a high net worth to a zero net worth. In the midst of all this, he's looking there. He's looking at the landscape. Here's where these oxen and asses used to be. Here's where these servants used to be. Here are these other servants. Here's where my sheep used to be. And they're all burned up, and the servants are burned up. I mean, that's all there. And he sees this, he sees this darkened spot of ashes. This darkened spot that where once the sheep and the herd were there and the people were there. And then he looks over here and he sees this, this other catastrophe that's happened here. And he sees where, where once were his children, which were very close by to that, that location. They were in their, their house banqueting and feasting. And the four walls came down and fell upon his children and crushed them. So watch this. We see in chapter 1, Job is just stunned by all this. But Job maintains his integrity. And he says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He doesn't curse God. Well, now we get to chapter 2. 2 now. Watch this, and I'm going to go back. We'll go back to chapter 2, and Satan says, God says, see, I told you he wouldn't curse me. I told you he'd maintain his integrity. I told you he's a righteous man. He said, listen, you take away his health. You take away his health. This man will curse you. You get him where it touches him most. And he and, and God said, okay, I'll do that. I'll let you do that. He's in thy hand, but save his life. And verse 7 says, so Satan sent, went forth from the presence of the Lord, and notice he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Now circle the words sore boils. The boils that he had were the same kind of boils that, that God afflicted the Egyptians with over in Exodus chapter 9 when he sent that plague of boils. Now these boils, the Egyptians called it a black leprosy. It was a, it was a terrible skin inflammation that, they, that, that people had that resembled leprosy. You were, you, were, you were in misery from it. You were covered from head to toe with just these, these, all these, these, these ruptures, these eruptions on your skin that would break open. If anything touched it, it would break open and pus and water would come out. Pretty gross there on that. But just you can imagine the person looks less than human. The person does not look sightly. It is very disgusting. In fact, as we read through Job, there's a putrid decaying smell that comes out of that. And some of that may have, may have, may have also been a result of just some things that, that some of this happened because there was some sickness inside of him that manifests itself on the outward, outward basis because he talks about his breath being corrupt later on in Job there. So Job is a very sick man. He's a very sick man spirit, physically, and he's been a devastated man emotionally, spiritually, all this. Well, Job is in the situation, look at verse 8. He's had these boils on him. He's in inflammation. Pus is coming out of him. He's in so much pain, he doesn't even like the sight of what he has. His wife can't even stand his look. His wife is so disgusted with him. In fact, he says, my friends and my lovers are aloof from me. His wife didn't even want to see him. He was just so disgusting looking. He takes this, he finds some bo broken pottery and he starts scraping himself the pottery just to see if he could get rid of those, those boils there. And he found it was futile because as he did that, bo boils would come back up again or scars would emerge and he just, he just was a mess there. Well, watch what Job happens here. The Bible gets, gets us to verse 8. Watch what happens. He takes this pottery, he scrapes himself and then we find a semicolon there. 
And watch what Job does. At that moment in time, Job is feeling the world on his shoulders. You ever had that feeling? I mean, he's feeling like the loneliest man on earth. He's feeling like nobody could endure a problem as big as what he's going through. And he looks out around the horizon. Over here he had his herds. Over here he had his holdings. Over here he had his heirs. And he looks at that one spot. Go back to chapter 1 with me. Would you notice that? In verse 16. He looks at that one charred spot. It's a big spot. It's a big area where the fire of God came down. The fire of God came down, as the description gives in verse 16, and burned up the sheep and the servants. Servants that he knew by name, he wrote their paycheck. He gave them their shilling. He gave them their, their gold and their silver. All that remained there were human ashes. All that remained over there were the ashes of the sheep. He'd seen sheep ashes before. They'd burned sheep as sacrifice. He did burnt offerings. He looked there. Can you, can you imagine that with me just for a minute there? Oh, he, he, there's this, this big, darkened area. And Job, with his potsherd in his hand, a man suffering from his head to his feet, crying and weeping, pus pouring out of his wounds. And I'm not trying to gross you. I'm telling you literally what's going on here. He walks over to that location where there's ashes, and the Bible says Job sat down among the ashes. He sat there. He wallowed in his misery. He's wondering in his mind, what did I do to deserve this? He's wondering in his mind, is there any good that comes out of this? He's wondering in his mind, God, are you there? God, I cannot tell you how heavy my heart is. God, I cannot tell you how crushed I am. And as he's sitting there in those ashes, not very far away are the four walls of that house that collapsed where his children were still crushed and buried beneath those walls. He had no servants to dig them out. They're all gone, right? They're all killed. They're all gone. They're burned up and gone. He has no servants. He has no helpers. He's gone. I mean, he's gone from a substantial net worth to a zero net worth. You might even say a negative net worth at that moment in time. Because as far as that man's concerned, he, the, the, the most important thing he had left, because people say, well, I can lose my money, I can lose my cars, but as long as I got my health, I can, I, I can get it back. You know what God was saying there? Yeah, I'm going to take your health too. Job is sitting among the ashes. He's mourning in sorrow. But look at another one, if you would. Go with me to Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. Abraham said, I'm but dust and ashes. Job is sitting down among the ashes. Did you notice Jonah 3, 6? The ravage of fire. Jonah is sent. He gets a second chance. How many are thankful for second chances from God? Amen. Job, Jonah doesn't even go inside the city. He's outside the walls of the city. Two things I appreciate about that. One is he didn't have to go in there. Secondly, he had a short message, amen? He says, if you don't repent 40 years from now, you're gone. That's what he said, right? 
I mean, I'm paraphrasing for just a minute. He said, he, and then, then notice here, the people heard about it. And the people told the king of Nineveh. Now, you, you know the story. The Assyrians were a very barbaric people. And Nineveh was the capital. And Jonah was, he just was very spiteful of the, of the Assyrians. He didn't want to deal with this issue. And notice something that was beyond Jonah's imagination happens here in verse 6. For word came unto the king of Nineveh. And you would think this king of Nineveh would be angry. And he'd send, he'd send uh, 30 chariots and 200 horsemen out to kill this, this Jewish prophet there from Gath-hefer. And he rose from his throne. He laid his robe from him. Now watch this. Now this is a pagan king. This is not, this is not a Jew. This is not a believer. This is a pagan king, right? And he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in what? Wherever that king sat, a fire had burned. It may have been a place where they sacrificed babies to the fire, because they did that in those days. Hmm? It may have been a place where they burned their garbage. That's what they did in Gehenna, right? Down, down in the, the Valley of Hinnom. We don't know what it was. It doesn't matter. What really matters in the context is he sat. Among the ashes. This man was trembling and fearful of God burning up his city and his kingdom. Ashes represent where a fire burned. Ashes of the charred burned out remains of something that went through the fire. Abraham, Job, and the king of Nineveh were all ravaged by their circumstances. Brought to the place of helplessness, their humanity, and humility. Can I ask you a question tonight? Has God sent a fire in your life to ravage and burn up some things that need to turn to ashes? Is there a fire raging somewhere? Are you someone right now, you feel you can identify with Job's situation? You can identify with the king of Nineveh? You're sitting down among the ashes. There's the ravages of fire. But notice secondly tonight, would you notice the ruins of fire? The ruin of fire. I want you to imagine with me the, the images of the campfire 2018, just a month ago. And compare that to the coffee fire almost the same time a year ago last year in the Napa Valley area. Buildings that once were, gone. Furniture and appliances that once were, gone. Things of great memory, gone. People that once wore, gone. Cars that once drove, gone. All gone. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. And would you notice Nehemiah chapter 1, please? We're talking about the ruin from fire. Nehemiah chapter 1, if you'll turn there, verse 1. Nehemiah is, is a public servant. He is a... He's in the higher echelon of public service. He's a Jew. He's a servant of God. He was a man that though he had risen very high in his position, it didn't change his heart for God. That's a blessing, amen. He didn't let his, he didn't let his wealth corrupt him. He still loved God. He was still concerned about the beloved city of Jerusalem. In chapter 1, I want you to notice verses 1 to 4 with me. The Bible says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass the month Chizilu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, 
came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped and which were left of the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, notice verse 3, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction, reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And underline that. The gates were burned with fire. Now, if you go over, the, over with me to, um, to 2 Chronicles 36, 19, this is what the Bible says when Nebuchadnezzar went through there. It says, and they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all the palaces there with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels. So we're told in the scriptures that there's three, there's three things that burned. We see that the house of God was burned down to ashes. We see the palaces of the kings were burned down to ashes. And we read that the gates thereof were consumed with fire. All that was left was charred metal and ashes. That's it. What once was was no longer there. And Nehemiah goes there. He hears, first of all, he hears the report of this. And in his mind is one word, ruin. Ruin. He's thinking in verse 3 about the remnant that were left of the captivity are in great affliction. They were being oppressed by the people of the land. And then they were under reproach. Nothing had changed. These people were in very terrible situation. They were, they were, just, they were despised by the surrounding nations. And he says, you know, and then he hears report. Now, it's many years later since this has all happened. You've got to bear in mind, it's been more than 70 years, maybe about 90 to 95 years, maybe almost 100 years since, since the time all that happened. And, you know, Nehemiah was not, was not alive at that time when this all happened. And so he hears about the walls. He says, you've you got to be kidding me. He says, 70 years before, before well, after 70 years of captivity, that something should have happened. And we have two captivity, we had two, two, two groups of people to go back. And they, 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 they supposedly rebuilt the temple. But what's going on here? He says, the walls are still broken down and the gates are burned with fire, and all you can imagine is harder ashes and charred remains. Well, we, we read about that there, and he's burnt, and he, he, in his heart, he's overwhelmed with this thought that there's ruins there, and, he's, and verse 4 tells us that he sat down and wept and mourned certain days. Well, go with me to chapter, 12, chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 2, I'm going to read this to you because I want to catch some thoughts here. In Nehemiah chapter 2, let's go further. Nehemiah felt at that moment in time, somebody needed to do something about it. Hey, when there's charred remains, when there's burned down gates and the wall's broken down, somebody needs to get a burden. Some man needs to get a burden. So somebody's got to do something about it, amen. Someone's got to say there's somebody's got to do something about the city. And later on, we read about him. He says, there's come a man to seek the welfare of the people of Jerusalem there. So he says, somebody's got to do it, and I'm going to be the one that's going to do it. He says, it doesn't matter whatever else happens. And we watch through a sequence of events how God God answers prayer for Nehemiah and gets it gets the king on board with him and the king of Persia gives him the blessing of the king and he gives him some provision and he goes there now he's in his first night there in Jerusalem are you with me say amen he's there in the first night in Jerusalem verse chapter 2 verse 12 and he says I rose in the night I and some few men with me neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon and he says I went out by night by the gate of the valley even before the dragon well and to the dung port, and he viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates of which were consumed with fire. And we'll read the rest later on. But he goes there, he's on his horse, his beast, he's on his horse, and he's doing a survey trip at night. And I'm just trying to imagine in my mind, did he have a torch? What did he use to see? Because it's nighttime, and they didn't have city lights and floodlights like we have. And so he's riding there on his beast with just these few men. They didn't know what he was looking for. Whoever those few men were, they were, they were probably just saying, okay, here's some, here's, some, here's some leftover from the broken wall, and here are the charred remains of this gate, and here's some ashes that are there. And, and, but they weren't looking like he did. And the Bible says here, he saw a very 
very clearly that there was this wall that was broken down and gates there burned with fire. And that was moving the heart of this man. And he circled the entire city. And I want you to imagine what's going through Nehemiah's mind. Nehemiah is looking at entryways that should have been protected and walls that have surrounded the city to fortify it and represent his safety and defense. And he looked at a place that once was beautiful, that looked basically very ugly and very terrible. And he looked at a place... It should have given a testimony of God's blessing. And he looks at a place where all that was left is ashes and rubble. And nobody cared among their people to rise up and do something about it. Nobody wanted to care about the walls. And nobody wanted to care about these gates that were there. It's all burned up and consumed with fire. And so Nehemiah goes there and he surveys it. Now he comes back because he did not tell the elders and he didn't tell the rulers what he did. And he comes back to them. Notice verse 16. And he says, and the rulers knew not where I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did, did the work. Then he said to them, then said I to them, ye see the distress that we are in. I like the fact he said we are in, not you are in. Amen. He said, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates are burned with fire. And let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, we have no more reproach. Hey, this man took an unpaid leave of absence. He took off with no pay. He decided he had the king's blessing with materials. That's all he needed. He took an unpaid leave of absence. He had no idea when he was going to go back, but he went with faith and determination and courage and the answer of prayer from God, and he determined we're going to go back and do something about it. And listen, he was already motivated when he got to city Jerusalem, but when he saw the ashes, and he saw the burned remains and he saw the charred gates and he saw the charred metal. Something stirred him. He said, you see the distress we're in. We've got to do something about it. He says, what used to be is no longer there. He saw the remains. He said, look, at something that once testified to the worship of God is down. Something that once testified to God's favor is down. Something that once testified to God's protection was down. All that remained that once talked about our defense system and our protection, it's all burned up and all it is is ashes there. Ashes represent ruin. Maybe you're someone going through that fire. It might be the fire of chastening. Chastening is God's loving exercise of discipline in a life that is in sin, far from God, and in rebellion. God sends the fire of chastening to burn away some things. Fire of chastening is needed to burn away our pride. The fire of chastening has to come to burn away heart and spirit. The fire of chastening has to come to burn away worldly dreams, material accumulations. The fire of chastening has to come to burn away idols that are standing between us and God. When the fire comes, it burns, it consumes. All that's left is ashes. Is there any beauty that can come out of the ashes? Maybe you're someone going through the fire of trial. Peter describes our trials in 1 Peter 1.7 as fiery trials. Fiery trials. They burn. You can feel the heat. You're uncomfortable. It stays with you. You ever burned your finger, burned yourself? There's a throbbing that stays with that burn. When you're going through the fire trial, there's a throbbing going on your heart. There's a throbbing going in your soul. You don't know how to explain to anybody, but you know what it is. You're in pain, but you can't describe to anyone. And sometimes God sends us a fire of trial to burn away tendencies that could take us astray. And sometimes a fire of trial has to come to burn away things that hinder our service for God. And sometimes a fire of trial has to come to burn away things that keep us from seeing God's vision more clearly. And sometimes the fire of trial has to come to burn away distractions that hinder greater things God wants to do. 
I say tonight, we see the ravages of the fire. We see the ruin from the fire. But I want you to notice tonight as I close, would you notice the remarkable from the fire? Is there beauty from ashes? God said through Isaiah to comfort them that mourn, to give beauty for ashes. Is it possible to have beauty from ashes? How can there be beauty for ashes? Thomas Edison was the inventor of the microphone. Believe it or not, the old phonograph, the incandescent light, and the storage battery, many other things. He was an inventor. December 1914, he had one building that kept all of his papers, his inventions, things he was working on. You might call it his R&D department. He'd been working late, and the biggest invention he was working on at that time was the storage battery. And during those days, they had not, they had not perfected the idea of the fact you have to have the right climate environment and isolate from other things and, and how you know, the, the elements inside the storage battery would, were, were combustible and could result in fire. And he didn't realize this, that, that, you know, that, that the, the humidity factor was not, the, was not correct there, and uh, a fire erupted. And the fire spread very quickly because of the, the combustible materials inside the storage battery, and it just consumed the whole building. And even though the building was, was, uh, was perhaps, uh, you know, was, had all those things, it was underinsured on top of that because it was only insured for $238,000 at that time because most of the building was made out of concrete and thought to be fireproof, and the whole thing went up in flames. I mean, it just went up like, like a match. I mean, it just went real quickly. And so word got around the city because several fire departments came to try to put, put this out. And they were trying to work on it, and I forget how many fire departments were there, but several fire departments were trying to work on it. But everything he invented and worked on was going up in flames at that moment. I mean, you're talking about his phonograph ideas, his records, his film, everything, everything that was there. And all the other flammable materials throughout the building, it was just sending, it just, it was adding to the flames. It was going, and they're, they're trying to get this out. And uh, Thomas Edison had a son named Charles who heard about this. He was 24 years old. Mr. Edison was 67. And Charles, very first on his mind, is forget about the building and all the inventions. He says, where's dad? He's running around, where's dad? Somebody find my dad. Where's, where's my dad? Where's my dad? And there off to a corner somewhere as the wind was blowing this way and blowing that, that old man's white hair in that direction, Charles found his father. It just happened to be that a soft glow of the fire kind of reflected off his father's face. And Charles saw his dad. He knew that figure. He ran over and said, Dad, are you okay? Are you okay? And, and, and Thomas Edison said, said, Son, where's your mother? He said, are you okay? He said, I'm fine. Where's your mother? He said, get mom right away. I need you to get mom right here. And he didn't know what was going on there, but he said, just go bring your mother. Bring her very quickly. He said, and this is what he said. She will never see anything like this as long as she lives. Well, he goes and gets his, his mother. She brings her up, brings her to the side of, of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison squeezes the hand of his wife very carefully, holds her hand. He looks at her, and this is what he says. Listen very carefully. He says, honey, as the, as, as the fire was consuming everything and ashes were starting to accumulate, he says, honey, there's great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can start anew. Think about that. There's great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can start anew. Listen, three weeks after the fire, Edison managed to deliver the first phonograph in spite of all that. Is there beauty for ashes? Yes, there's beauty for ashes. There can be beauty found for ashes. Let me give you a story in the Bible that validates that. Go with me to Daniel chapter 3 and notice a story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice about these three Hebrew young men, and that was their Babylonian name, their Chaldean name. Their names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Notice what happens here. 
We'll read the narrative, even though we're out of time. We'll read the narrative just to capture <coughs> a few thoughts I want to give you. Is there beauty in ashes? Yes. Notice in Daniel chapter 3. The Bible says, Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage, or his face, was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake, and he commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than was wont to be heated. Now you know the story there. He basically said, if you don't bow to my 90-foot image, you're going to be cast into a furnace of fire. Now this furnace of fire, they burned a lot of things in it. It had a great intense heat. It was a huge fire. It was huge enough that they could, they could put several men inside there. And so he said, heat it up more. They put more fuel inside. They put more wood and coal, whatever combustible materials in there. They put more fuel in there. They heat that thing up. And the Bible says seven times more. And he said in verse 20, he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, for whatever reason, they probably thought, well, these men, once they realize they're going there, they're probably going to run away. These men were completely content in their faith that they were in the perfect will of God. They weren't going to run anywhere. They didn't need to run. By the way, when you're in a trial, you don't need to run. You just need to trust in God. Amen. And so here we find these men, they bound them, thinking they're going to run away. They bind these men. And here's the description the Bible gives us. These men, in verse 21, were bound in their coats, their hosen, their hats, and their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And so they're cast in there, bound, if you would. And the Bible says in verse 22, Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flames of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I've tried to imagine in my mind, I've always tried to imagine this, how intense that fire was and the flames leaping out of that opening of the furnace as they brought those men. And I'm not sure how close they got, but as they tried to get near, the fire slew those men. And there was no resistance that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gave these men. There was no resistance to their part. They were just very content because by their very words, they said, if God will deliver Deliver us, praise his name. But if God doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to bow. They said, we're not going to bow, we're not going to bend, we're not going to kneel. We're not going to do any of those things there. So you can throw us in that fire. We're not going to change our mind. So their mind was made up. God is still the only one we're going to worship. We're not going to bow to your 90-foot image there. By the way, we need some Christians that will say that today. We're not going to bow to some 90-foot images today, amen. And so they had, these men do that. And then the Bible gives us an interesting commentary in verse 23. Look at this. In verse, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, notices they fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fire furnace. Now, if you stopped your Bible there, it looks like a pretty bad situation. If you cut the rest of that passage out and stop there, that's how most human events look like. You, fell, you fall down bound into the flames of fire. Now, that's how the average Christian feels like when a trial comes and when chasing comes. They feel like they're bound. They feel like they're falling and they're about to burn up. That's what they feel like. They feel like they're going to turn into ashes. And they're, in their mind, they're saying, there's no beauty in ashes. There's nothing beautiful that can come out of ashes there. But the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished. <coughs> he rose up in haste and he spake and he said to his counselors, did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth was like the Son of God. And every time I read 25, I just want to go like this. Praise God. Amen. That's wonderful. He says, Man, that man looks inside there, and he saw, he got an inside look at how God works. In fact, he's, he's one of the few pagans that saw Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Amen. And he looked inside there. And he says, well, look, it, I don't see three men. I see four men. They're loosened. They're walking in the midst of fire. They have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace. He knew God had delivered them. He was, he was a pagan, but he knew enough about God's power. He said, I better stop right where I'm at. And he goes there, and it's amazing. The fire, the intensity of the heat 
had, had, had kind of died down a little bit so he could approach the mouth of fire. I thought that's kind of interesting there. And that was God's way of just kind of intervening for him. And it says, Nebuchadnezzar came near the mouth of burning fiery furnace, and he spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth, come hither. And they came forth out of the midst of fire. And verse 27 says, and the princes, and the governors, and the captains, and the king's council. Now there's, a, there's an ensemble of people. There's an assembly of great people there. They, they gathered together, probably the only time the pagans got together on one thing, amen. They came together to see the spectacle. And the Bible says, they saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, and nor was the hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire passed them. Hey, glory to God, they looked at them. They were fireproof Christians, amen. They looked at them. There was no smell of fire on them. There was no burning on them. Their hair was not singed. Their coats had not been touched. The fire did not touch them. Do you get what I'm saying tonight? They were in a trial, but the fire did not touch them. And these unsaved pagan boys are looking at them and says, whoa, something good going on here, amen? What's happening here? And notice the response from Nebuchadnezzar. He spake and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now listen, it's amazing how many Christians that don't say something like that, but a pagan says that right at that moment. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. Now don't you notice what he's praising there? He's praising, he's praising God for their faith. He's praising God because they changed the king's word. You know what they did? They just changed the law. Through their persecution, they changed the, they changed the king's word. They, their faith, they, they validated God is on the throne by their faith. They validated God's word because they were courageous. And they and notice they yielded their body. They showed they were in the will of God. The word yields the same idea we have in Romans chapter 12, that we need to yield our bodies to Jesus Christ. We present our bodies a living sacrifice. I mean, they, they said, hey, God's will is perfect. We're not going to get in the way. They might not serve and worship any other God. Hey, watch what happens. A closer look at the situation as he looked at them. You know what he looked? He looked inside. Instead of seeing them burning, they were blessed. Instead of seeing them ravaged, they were rejoicing. Hey, by the way, instead of seeing them consumed, they were cleansed because fire cleanses. Amen. Proverbs 25, 4 tells us this. Take away the dross from the silver and there shall come forth a vessel for the fire. Job 23, 10 says, but he knoweth the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Is there beauty and ashes? Praise God, there is. They were fireproof. The fire had no power over them. Is there beauty for ashes? Yes. The Bible's filled with real-life stories of beauty that came forth out of ashes. The story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a young widow. Didn't know where she was going. She was a Moabite. She was a pagan, going back to Bethlehem, Judah. But isn't it amazing as we enter the Christmas season, a kinsman redeemer, purchased her by the name of Boaz and brought her to the family. We see her at a funeral. We see her in the field. We see her at his feet. But then the story, she's in the family. Amen. We look at this woman by the Ruth, at, by the name of Ruth in the beginning, there's ashes. But later on, there's beauty. Because through her, the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ would come. Jesus' heritage would be traced back to Ruth. Is there beauty in ashes? Yes. Think about a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. There was a man who was a persecutor of the Jews, and things looked so rough there. But you look at this man, and at the beginning, there was a lot of ashes there when he got saved. But at the end of that man's life, not only was he saved, but he was a great servant of God. And God, he advanced the church movement. Is there beauty in ashes? Yes, there's beauty in ashes. Think about the woman at the well. 
Here's a woman, her life could be consumed by, uh, by, by just defined by one word, ashes. She was, uh, she, was, she, just, she was a loner. She didn't want to be around people. Her life was miserable. She considered herself a loser. She didn't want nothing to do with people. But when she got saved, she said, come see a man which told me all the things that ever I did is not this is Christ. Hey, there's beauty that comes out of ashes. Let me tell you a story about a man by the name of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. Nate Saint and Jim Elliott had great hopes and ambitions when they were at Wheaton University. They formed a team that said, we're going to reach the Aka Indians for the glory of God. They went down to that, that area there of South America to reach the Aka Indians, and they made some, they made some headway there. But the day, there was one day they got there on the boat, and somehow the Aka Indians didn't receive them very well, and they were all killed. Nate Saint and, J- and Jim Elliott were killed. They were killed by the arrows of those same people. Jim Elliott's uh, widow, Elizabeth Elliott, she decided she was not going to go back. She was going to stay and keep ministering to those people. I want you to see a picture here tonight. The man on the left, on my left, which is probably your right, is Dr. Gilmore from Falls Baptist Church. He teaches in their, their, uh, their, Bible, their Bible college and seminary there. His son was with us for the orchestra thing. Dr. Gilmore sent me this picture when he went down to that same area with that man, that man there is the man that killed Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. He's the one that shot the arrows that killed him. That man got saved. That man is now being used of God to get the gospel to his own people down there. Is there beauty out of ashes? Yes, there's beauty out of ashes there. And I'm saying tonight, the Bible says God gives beauty for ashes there. As I close tonight, let me tell you a story there. In the midst of the campfire, November 8th, when that fire ravaged and made its way through there, all that was left over the next several hours was nothing but ashes. A game warden lived in that city of paradise. His name was Jake Olson. Jake Olson lost everything in that fire, or so he thought. And while they were at a camp incitement there, Jake Olson was talking to his wife. She said, you know, honey, she says, before the fire happened, I took my wedding ring off, and I put it on a sink counter. She says, I wonder if, if my ring made it through the fire. And after it cleared out <coughs> and he'd gotten permission, he could go back into that site. He went back there. And he walked up to what was once his house. And he kind of walked in that pathway, and he knew kind of where the layout of his house was, and he went exactly to the place where the sink counter was. And he started poking around in the ashes there, moving around the ashes and debris. And sure enough, his wife's ring, which he had left it on the, on the counter, he found his wife's ring intact old, unburned, in the same way it was before the fire came. He found that, gave it back to her. Let me read you what he said there. When Jake Olson found it, he says, he, he found the ring, and he said this, she told me where she had left it on the counter, the sink counter, he said. And when he found it, he says, just amazing. I just didn't think we are going to find it, but we had to try. Beloved, there is beauty that can come out of ashes. Fire is the only process that produces ashes. And sometimes fire has to be used of God through chastening, Sometimes through trial, and God uses that, but out of it comes forth beauty. Look at Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, and we'll close with this. The Spirit of the Lord God's upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to them that are to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Notice, to point unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteous, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. That's the key thought there. There's beauty for ashes. When God puts something of that difficult in our lives, is that we might come forth as trees of righteousness, 
we come forth solidified and strengthened, bolstered. And at the end of that, that the Lord may be glorified. Years ago in the 60s, Bill Gaither wrote this song. He says, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful out of my life. He said, if there ever were dreams that were lofty and noble, they were my dreams at the start. And hope for life's best were the hopes that I harbor down deep in my heart. Listen to this. But my dreams turned to ashes, and my castles all crumbled. My fortunes turned to loss. So I wrapped it all in the rags of life, and I laid it at the cross. Tonight, are you sitting among some ashes? I want to encourage you tonight. There's some beauty that can be found in those ashes. There's beauty that can be found there. There's beauty found in the ashes. Even as an unsaved person, you can be saved. As someone going through a trial, God will bring you forth. You'll be just like fine gold. But or maybe tonight, there's beauty that can be found in ashes. Yes, there's the ravages. Yes, there's the ruin. But there's a remarkable. You can look to God. He gives beauty for ashes. Father, tonight, I pray that this evening you help take these simple thoughts, this Bible message to encourage us about the one thought that, Lord, that you do give beauty for ashes. There's something good that comes out of it. I think of what, Lord, the Joseph's response to his brothers. The, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I think of Romans 8, 28 that tells us, we know, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We know that, Lord, 1 Peter 1, 7 tells us that, Lord, that you use these fiery trials that we might stand and give glory to God at his presence. Father, I pray that you'll help us for some many, and perhaps many in our church right now, going through great fires, fires of difficulty, fires of trial, maybe even fires of chasing, of recognizing there's some things that need to be burned away. Old Nebuchadnezzar looked in that, in that furnace, and Lord, where he saw burning, where he thought he'd see burning, he saw blessing. And where he thought he saw people being consumed, he saw people being cleansed. And Father, tonight, help us to accept the fact that there's fires that have to produce ashes, but in the midst of the ashes, there's beauty that can be found. We can be a better Christian. We can be closer to God. We can have a better marriage. We can be a better home. We can be a better child. We can be a better son or daughter. Father, whatever it may be tonight, I pray that you'd have your precious, loving own way. I pray that you give beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. Would you use our invitation time to give solace, to give healing, to give a salve for our open wounds and our hurting, we pray. We ask this of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. We're going to stand. We do something very unusual for the invitation. I'm not asking you to come because you feel guilty about something. I ask you to take some time tonight. If you're going through trial, going through some difficulty, would you just give acknowledge the Lord through that and say, Lord, I'm feeling some things going on. I just need some beauty for ashes tonight. I feel like there's some things that need to be burned. And maybe, maybe you're feeling right now that God, there's some fire that you need to experience in your life. Or maybe you are experiencing. You just need to get acknowledge the Lord through. Would you give him glory through that? Would you acknowledge him and give him glory through that tonight? You come and do that this evening. Beauty for ashes, yes, there is beauty for ashes. God gives that. Job said he sat down among the ashes, but we know the end of Job. The Bible says his end was better than his beginning. Something good comes out of that. Father, tonight we commit trials and chastening, difficulties, afflictions, burdens, and problems into the good hand of God. We pray this evening that while we may be feeling the intensity of the heat, and some may be even identifying with just the, the afflictions of Job. That through this, may we sense that your love for us. Nothing will separate from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And even what Paul said, what shall we say then these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And this evening, we pray that your perfect will be done in every life. 
We pray that we just would see the beauty for ashes. Some are sitting among the ashes right now. They're sitting at a place where there was their charred remains of something that once was. It's not going to come back, but something more beautiful, something more glorious to God will come forth out of that. Help us to see your perfect will done in our lives. Thank you tonight. As we dismiss this evening, help us to digest what we've heard and what we've read this evening, that it might set on our hearts and help us to be mature Christians growing in the Lord. And we'll thank you for this, Lord, tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.